We're engaged in a verse-by-verse study through the New Testament book of Revelation, and this morning, God willing, we will finish chapter 16. Revelation describes a series of visions given to the Apostle John by Jesus, and like the rest of Scripture, it tells the consistent story of God's own mission to redeem lost sinners and save all who will believe by grace through faith in Jesus. And Revelation is the last book in the Bible for a reason, because in it, John describes the completion of God's redemptive mission and the final defeat of evil itself and the vindication of faithful believers. Now, the part of the story that we're in now actually began in chapter 15, where John sees seven angels having the seven last plagues, and we're told that in them, the wrath of God is complete. All the redeemed believers are pictured in heaven, singing about the deliverance of God's people and the righteous judgment of their oppressors. And then, in chapter 16, the seven angels begin to unleash the wrath of God upon those who remain on the earth. As we've progressed through the past few chapters of the book, we have seen a sense of increased urgency. At first, we saw violent and deadly tribulation that affected but a fraction of the earth. Now, bowls full of God's wrath are poured out on everyone. Even so... As God turns up the heat on those who defy him, he does so in a deliberately incremental fashion, in a way that is intended to draw lost people to repentance and salvation, giving them both reason and opportunity to turn to God. If you remember, the first bowl produced foul and loathsome sores, on all those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned to blood, and every last sea creature died. John watched as the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then the fourth bowl was poured out on the sun, and men were scorched with great heat. We've noticed over and again, God does not simply kill all of these unrepentant earth dwellers. Instead, he allows them to be tormented in a way that may lead to their repentance. But at the same time, we must not forget, these are the people who have worshipped the beast and taken his mark. They have chosen sides with evil. They have participated in the persecution and killing of God's people. And God has not forgotten the cries for justice raised up by the martyrs. So, as God alone can do, he gives dark hearts cause and opportunity to repent, even as he demonstrates the basic law of retaliation. That fundamental aspect of justice whereby a punishment reflects the offense committed in both kind and degree. You see, God is justice and mercy. He is love and truth. He doesn't have to leave one behind to accomplish the other. In God, there is a perfect harmony of righteousness in all its forms. Time after time, guilty 
Rebellious people are given cause and opportunity to turn from their sin and turn to their Savior. They're given a taste of their own medicine. They're given a glimpse of what eternal conscious torment is going to look like. And yet they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Sinful, prideful men continue to curse God and refuse to turn from evil. So God demonstrates his sovereign power over the forces of nature and the forces of evil. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Facing the darkness, worshipers of the beast clearly see he's no match for God and yet they gnawed their tongues rather than repent. When the sixth angel poured his bowl on the Euphrates, its water was dried up to make way for the kings from the east. Then John saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and he explained that they were spirits of demons performing signs, that they would go out into all the earth to gather the kings of the world to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So it is that God, in this moment, in his wisdom, allows evil to come full circle as the forces of darkness, moving in darkness, now assemble themselves for the final conflict. The way one scholar put it, Evil is now poised to participate in its own destruction. Which brings us to our text for today, beginning at Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Now remember, seven is the number of completion, as in the seven days of creation. Also notice, this time, the bowl is poured out not on the earth, or its oceans, or rivers, or springs of water, nor even on the sun, but into the air. Scholars have observed how this completes the judgment on the four basic elements of the natural realm, according to Greek science, Earth, water, fire, and air. The earth was the target of the first bowl, which caused the loathsome sores. The water was the target of bowls two and three, poured out on the seas and rivers. Fire scorched men when the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And now the object is the air. And as the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne. Now we saw, or rather heard, such a voice back in verse 1, and based on our analysis there, this loud voice is likely the voice of God. John tells us the voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, and we've already determined that God was the only one remaining in the temple of heaven at this point. Moreover, he is the one that occupies the throne. Now some commentators have also pointed to a possible connection with Isaiah chapter 66, verse 6, if you believe that. 
where the people are urged to hear a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies all that they deserve. Of course, all this detailed attention to the source of the voice may seem a little redundant at this point. But experts invite us to recognize that this is the only place in the book where the three images of temple, heaven, and throne are brought together at the same time. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what to make of that, but it does appear to suggest that we are approaching a critical moment in the end times drama as all the indicia of divine good are brought to bear. The message itself is simple and clear. The loud voice is heard saying, it is done. Now, if you remember back in verse 1, the loud voice initiated these bold judgments. Here, it brings them to a close. This solemn observation also brings to mind the last words of Jesus from the cross when he said, it is finished. And experts in Greek language tell us that the perfect tense John uses here stresses the fact that something has been done with effects that linger into the future. The particular verb tense describes the continuance of completed action, which means, by inference, that the judgment of God has already occurred. Here, the message is that the time of his wrath is at an end, and God's final kingdom is about to arrive. Now, if you've read ahead, that may seem a bit premature, particularly as we see what happens in the next few verses. But we should probably read the events that follow to the end of this chapter as part of a singular whole, recognizing that it is with these events that God brings his wrath to an end. It is with these events that he introduces the close of the present age and begins the eschaton the final stage of his divine plan. Now, remember back in verse 15, we studied just last week. Jesus expressly offers the blessed assurance that he's coming back. Of course, you might not remember it that way because it was directed at those who are still residing in the fallen world in these end times, and so it's spoken there in the form of a warning. Behold, I am coming as a thief. But let's take care not to miss the underlying message. Judgment is welcomed by the aggrieved and opposed by the guilty. Just so, when Jesus reminds us that he's coming back, it brings joy and delight to the redeemed, even as it can stir fear and dread in a lost soul. Verse 18, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, scholars refer to this sort of imagery as a storm theophany, and what that means is that it's a visible manifestation of God. God is expressing himself in a way that mankind can appreciate, in this case, as a cosmic storm. 
Now, we've seen other examples of this kind of storm theophany as we've studied Revelation. We read of lightnings and thunderings and voices proceeding from the throne back in chapter 4, verse 5. We read about noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake when the angel threw the censer filled with fire from the altar back in chapter 8, verse 5. And in chapter 11, verse 19, when the temple of God was open in heaven, there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. In this case, likewise, there were also noises and thunderings and lightnings, events that people could readily perceive with their five senses. Of course, noises and thunderings and lightnings are usually regarded as natural phenomena, things that have natural explanations. But when God employs them to send a particular message, you can be sure that they will take on supernatural qualities. This kind of cosmic storm suggests the presence of God, as it did atop Mount Sinai, where God made himself known to Moses and the people in a similar fashion. And the key to God's role lies in both the timing and the severity of the events. In addition to the noises and thunderings and lightnings, God t- John tells us there was a great earthquake. Once again, these days, we have a pretty good idea of the root causes behind such natural phenomena, including earthquakes. We recognize the role of shifting tectonic plates, and we can measure seismic activity with great precision. But when God chooses to demonstrate his wrath in this way, you can be sure that it will take place in his perfect timing and it will surely be a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. While we have seen other examples of earthquakes in Revelation, I think it's fair to say that this is the big one. And the language of comparison that John employs here reminds us of what Jesus himself said while sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. His disciples were asking Jesus about the signs of the end times. In Mark 13, verse 19, he explained that in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And that's not even the first time that this kind of extraordinary language was used. In Daniel 12, verse 1, the prophet described the end of things, saying, There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation, even to that time. So the question becomes, will the people recognize God as the source of these sufferings, and if so, how will they respond? You know, it occurs to me that in our own lifetime. Prominent men who claim to be Christians have invited all kinds of controversy by suggesting that God uses natural disasters to punish the wicked. But we need to be very careful about putting things like that at God's feet. In this day and age, it is the devil whose evil power perpetrates disasters that kill people and destroy lives. He does it to cause suffering and death, and if possible, to persuade lost souls to curse God and blame him for their loss. 
Sadly, it's a pretty effective strategy in many cases. And it has caused many lost people to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. But in God's perfect timing, he will use the earth itself, the movement of tectonic plates, to bring evil to its knees. Verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And what John describes here is the horrible aftermath of the great earthquake, the damage that was done as a result. Of course, experts debate the identity of the great city referenced here. But honestly, we don't have enough information as yet to make an informed conclusion. That said, as we proceed through the next few chapters, we expect that the identity of the great city should become more clear. John tells us, though, that the great city was divided into three parts. Now, this demonstrates the immensity of the force involved because we're given the impression that perhaps massive fissures in the earth's crust will divide the great city. Maybe giant swaths of destruction will separate the three parts from one another. It's interesting to note that when the prophet Zechariah described the day of the Lord, he describes the Mount of Olives being split in two, making a very large valley, large enough that God's people may escape the crippling conflict taking place in Jerusalem. Perhaps this suggests what it will look like when that great city is fractured. And remember, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, these things can often be anticipated in time to take some precaution against them. But earthquakes, earthquakes seem to come out of nowhere with little or no warning. And even if technology eventually allows us to predict earthquakes, there's honestly very little that can be done to defend against the kind of massive convulsions that John observes. Indeed, when he says that the cities of the nations fell, he essentially confirms that this earthquake is not going to be confined to a particular region. It will be a worldwide earthquake. It will devastate the cities of all the nations. And the last part of the verse explains the reason why all this was done. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. For the repentant believer, we know that God dispenses justice to us according to the law of mercy. But for the unrepentant soul that has embraced evil, God dispenses justice according to the law of retribution and retaliation. And this, this is why we should never seek vengeance in this life. It is God's prerogative, and he alone is able to do it perfectly and righteously. Notice John says the sins of Babylon were remembered before God. Kind of an odd thing to say. But a similar phrase can be found in Acts Chapter 10, verse 31, your prayers and acts of mercy have been remembered before God. 
Well, scholars explain how this expression suggests that angels literally bring the prayers before God and remind him of the deeds of human beings. Now, of course, whether God actually needs a reminder is not the point. In a sense, it's like our prayers. God is mindful of the things that burden us, whether we share them with him or not. But he asks us to pray. And when he hears our prayers, he is pleased to be reminded of those things. In either case, he always does whatever righteousness requires. Now, the concluding language should remind us of Babylon's sin. You may remember back in chapter 14, verse 8, an angel announced that Babylon is fallen, fallen. The explanation given there is that she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Or as the Revised Standard Version translates it, she made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion. She caused the people of the earth to see her sin and embrace it for themselves. She leads souls to their own destruction. So now God's justice falls upon her, and as it does, it comes down in a familiar form as he gives her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Verse 20. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Well, this should remind us of the other great earthquake described back in chapter 6, verse 14. A quake so substantial, every mountain and island was moved out of its place. But this time, mountains and islands were not only moved, this time they fled away and were not found. Of course, this kind of imagery is often associated with the end times. Psalm 97.5 says, The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 4 says, Every mountain will be brought low. But that's not even the end of it just yet. John goes on to describe a vision of what must be the most powerful and destructive hailstorm in the history of the world. Verse 21. And a great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The idea of a hailstorm is another part of the judgment motif that's often associated with God expressing himself using the imagery of a storm. Once again, this image elaborates on the seventh Egyptian plague, described back in Exodus chapter 9, which was itself an unprecedented hailstorm. You may even recall the story from the Old Testament book of Joshua, where the Lord routed the Amorites who were gathered against Israel. As the Amorites fled, the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them, and they died. Indeed, in that story, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. And that's not to mention Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, the hailstorm constituted God's judgment on the enemies of his people. 
The same is true here. We're told that great hail from heaven fell upon men, and each hailstone was about the weight of a talent. The scholars suggest the talent referred to would be 125 librae, which were Roman pounds consisting of about 12 ounces each. Well, that would add up to 1,500 ounces, which then divided by 16 would yield 93.75 pounds per hailstone. But the weights and measures used in John's day were actually a bit more complicated than that. Talents, minas, and shekels were common. But there was a royal version and a common version. Not only that, each of those had a heavy version and a light version. Scholars believe that the talent John's referring to here is the heavy, common talent used in New Testament times, a unit of measure equal to about 130 pounds. According to some calculations, that would be a hailstone about 18 inches in diameter. The largest hailstone ever recovered in the United States fell in the little town of Aurora, Nebraska on June 22, 2003. The stone measured a mere 7 inches in diameter. By comparison, a regulation soccer ball is about 8.5 inches across. According to the National Geographic Society, that hailstone is now at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, where it will be preserved indefinitely. However, scientists define indefinitely. The previous long-standing record was a hailstone which fell at Potter, Nebraska on July 6, 1928, which might make you wonder why people live there. It also measured about seven inches in diameter, and it weighed in at one and a half pounds. However, according to a statement from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, the Aurora hailstone didn't break the record for the heaviest hailstorm. It was hard for us to get an accurate weight for this stone, they said, because a chunk of it hit the gutter of a house and about 40% of it was lost. Also, we think some of the stone's mass might have melted before it was preserved in a freezer. But, by weight, the University of Arizona Extreme Climate Archives tell us that the heaviest hailstone in recorded history weighed in at 2.25 pounds. It fell on Bangladesh on April 14, 1986, in a storm that killed 92 people. Experts tell us large hailstones like this can fall at speeds greater than 100 miles an hour. And what John describes are hailstones at least 50 times bigger than the largest ever recorded. At this point in the story, remember the earth's been plunged into darkness. There will be no more caves to hide in. After all, we're told the mountains can't even be found anymore. And ordinary man-made dwellings will offer little defense against this withering storm. But rather than repent, men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. In the closing line that concludes this scene of worldwide devastation, John does not focus on the annihilation of the wicked, 
but rather upon their refusal to repent. They seem to have figured out where this all came from, but they have not yet figured out what to do about it. Instead of acknowledging the sovereign power of God and turning from their sinful ways, they continue to curse God because of the plague of hail, because it was so exceedingly great. As they have done so many times before, these lost sinners focus on their personal pain and fail to appreciate the main message. In fact, this is the exact same thing that happened back in ancient Egypt. Evidently, it's human nature. Like Pharaoh, unbelievers refuse to listen to God and choose instead to blame him for all of life's plagues. The question that remains is whether people here and now will do the same. What do you say? I realize that some of this stuff, these extraordinary events, are hard to accept. Mostly because the descriptions of them fall so far outside the scope of our own experience. Yet even among those who regard the book of Revelation as mostly symbolic, it is still recognized as a prophetic critique of human delusion and the terrible consequences of social upheaval. It calls on us to read the signs of the times with visionary imagination and the insight of prophecy. At the same time, we recognize that the prophetic words are addressed to us, whose minds and habits have been so formed by culture and self-interest, we can find it difficult to accept the truth about our personal sin. And as a result, we may find it difficult, if not impossible, to imagine repenting. Even if Revelation were nothing more than inspired mythology, and I believe it is much more than that, it should still rip us away from the idleness of our ignorance. It should still drive us away from the routines of oppressing others, committing violence upon others, and indulging our whims. It should lead us into the arms of Jesus, who died to set us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see through the haze of evil that blinds us to your will. Help us to hear your still small voice over the deafening noise of our own wishes. We long for a world without sin and death. And you alone have words of life that we can depend on. So we thank you, Lord, for pursuing us and for never stopping or changing course. Your faithfulness, Lord, is the reason that we know you will do as you promise always even if we don't fully understand. Please help us, Lord, to resolve our doubts, to set aside our sin, and to trust in Christ for our lives now and forever. Please increase our faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.